Welcome to the Better Buildings podcast, Canada's conversation about opportunities for improvement in the built environment. Better Buildings is presented by Canadian Consulting Engineer Magazine. I'm the magazine's editor, Peter Saunders, and I'm here today with Trevor Haskett of RWDI to discuss damping systems for buildings. Trevor, it's very nice to have you with me on the podcast today. Thank you, Peter. I'm delighted to speak with you. Can you tell us about your role and how damping systems are being used for buildings in Canada from your perspective? Sure. Um, We are perhaps in a long sort of middle zone where we're crossing over that region where damping, adding a supplementary damping system to a structure used to be a, oh no, I didn't design it well enough. Or perhaps that awkward conversation with the owner, look, your architect made something very aggressive and appealing, but I'm having a hard time with conventional construction techniques to make it comfortable for the occupants or suit its its design intent. Uh, I'm gonna need this little Band-Aid solution called the damping system. That's where we were 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and it's starting to come a little bit more into the mainstream focus now where sure it can enable um, very aggressive demanding structures. It could also be used as just another optimization technique to reduce the cost of the structure and perhaps make it more green through the reduction in building materials. And, you know, I'm sure that's where things are really headed. So can you tell me more about these systems and how specifically they're protecting against vibrations, the ones that you work with? We are generally, um, RWDI is generally coming involved in a project when it um, is moving around or predicted to move around too much at the design stage due to wind or potentially pedestrian excitation. And, th- and those are really applied to high-rise structures, the former and perhaps um, long-span floors or bridges for, uh, for the latter. And if at the design stage, somebody is able to identify that, you know, this, this might be an issue, we can certainly investigate that. And sometimes conventional uh, fixes, you know, changing the distribution of mass and stiffness in a structure can still yield a traditionally designed structure. But sometimes, um, you know, the opportunity is seen to add some damping to the structure, which is really, it's really low hanging fruit. I mean, nobody would think of making an automobile without, you know, damping in the suspension system. So you can make some really great advancements in the performance of these structures by adding some damping because they have so little to start with. Uh, so yeah, can you kind of give examples of what you would be adding to a building in that case? Sure. So in the case of something like a high rise, what we're generally concerned with is the response of the building laterally. And the, and the problems that can cause are occupant discomfort or perhaps um, groaning of partitions, movement of elevator cables in the hoistway. So in order to combat lateral motion acceleration issues, we would put in a type of damping system that also moves around laterally in the structure. Some of the main types of that are broken down into whether it is a heavy chunk of structural material like steel or concrete, even lead in some cases, depending on your space constraints are. Or if you can find a little bit more space, you can make mass move around in your structure if it's an appropriately shaped container of like water. And and through just the application of some basic physical principles, um, there are complexities, of course, but basically this chunk of mass will move around um, with a little bit of a, of a lag, a little bit of a delay be- behind the motion of the structure. And in, in a sense, it's anchoring the building in place uh, in lieu of being able to actually anchor the building to something up at that elevation. 
Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm really trying to sort of picture this in my mind because the only kind of example I've ever seen years ago, I was in um, a facility, a manufacturing facility, so probably really only about one or two floors high in uh, in Japan, where they're obviously very worried about seismic activity. And so the building essentially sat on what looked like kind of giant hockey pucks. And so that was, you know, that's my image of a damping system. Um, when you're talking about your types of high rises and lateral motion, what, what are we kind of looking at? Right. So let me let me um, sort of go over the types of systems we're generally not going at because I think they're, your listeners are going to be more familiar with those. So the large hockey puck type isolators underneath the structure, these are a, you know, a great technology for earthquake um, and earthquake prone areas, lower rise structures. And they basically isolate the structure on a very sort of soft lateral layer. They're very stiff vertically. Uh, they take the gravity a little bit laterally. You know, it permits the ground to move around in an earthquake a lot underneath the structure without really causing the structure to move. We're not talking about those. We're also not talking about another um, relatively mature way to go about seismic protection. Uh, so in a large manufacturing facility like, you know, Bombardier would have done out in the West Coast, uh, you would have a lot of braced bays in your manufacturing facility and not just braced with um, stiff structural material, but actually with some dissipation type device. So maybe um, materials clamped together under friction or maybe fluidic uh, viscous shock absorber type devices. We're also not talking about those uh, for a high rise because in order to make that work in a high rise, you really would have to put them on every single story all the way up the structure and this, you know, dozens and dozens of stories. And what happens is the movement at the top of the building, this is where we're concerned about occupant comfort. Um, you know, uh, we talk about thresholds of perceptibility, and these things are measured in thousandths of a of a g, thousandths of a unit of gravity. Uh, the amount of strain present at every single one of those stories down the building is really very small, and so those types of braced structures they can't respond to such small movements in the way we'd like them to. So instead, what we do is we have a device at the top. Uh, it is idealized as a mass, a big chunk of mass. Um, and we often draw it as being simply attached with a spring element and a damper element between the structure. And, you know, it just, it, it moves around, it's pushed on by the upper structure, but it's free to float on the upper structure. And by proper selection of that stiffness, given its mass, and by proper selection of that damping behavior, uh, we can optimize the amount of energy dissipated. We're basically capturing relative motion between this supplementary mass at the top of the structure and its uppermost diaphragms. And once we've once we've created that relative motion between these bodies, we can then dissipate it. The energy has to go somewhere, so we can turn it into turbulence in a fluid. We can dissipate it as a friction or through orifices and valves. Okay, so yeah, I heard the term dissipation in both uh, versions. You know, we talked about the uh, uh, the shapes of uh, the types of systems we would see uh, for seismic activity. Uh, the other term I think you used for the um, uh, the sort of hockey puck model was uh, was base isolation. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so now it also sounds like what you're tending to do is you're going in at the top of the building rather than the bottom. Is that really the case? That's correct. So we would attach a. I'll use I'll use the term that's quite generally used. It's called a tuned mass damper although it may be a liquid sometimes there are sort of there's a family tree there's lots of different versions of a tuned mass damper uh, it is a point mass or maybe several point masses at the top of the structure because that's where the structure moves most you can try to put one in further down in the structure but you very rapidly lose effectiveness 
um, and I'll just sort of turn that on its side. Uh, if we were working on a pedestrian bridge, you know, a simply supported bridge at two of its ends, uh, the point that moves the most is going to be the very center of that bridge. Well, that center of the bridge is also the place where we would connect our or install a tuned mass damper like device where the most motion is. And it, in that case, of course, would float up and down on a suspension system with damping. Okay. Now, starting to talk about high-rise buildings, are there specific scenarios as to why one high-rise building would, you know, need damping systems or would be simply desirable for them versus another that might not? Yeah. So this is really how we got involved in this. Uh, the wind is tricky that way. It, it sort of defies a very tidy explanation for, hey, what is a rule of thumb or some of the criteria that really help me know when I should consider a damping system? Uh, it's got a lot to do with height. It's got a lot to do with exposure. Uh, if you're sheltered, of course, in a downtown core, you may not see a lot of direct wind on, on the sail area of the building. So it's got a lot to do with slenderness. So you could have sort of a, a medium tall building, but with an extremely small footprint. And this would also perhaps be a candidate for, um, well, really the problem is a large wind response. So uh, there's a kind of wind response that's not generally intuitive. And that is that the, you know, when the wind blows on a building, of course, it'll, it'll bend the building a little bit downwind. It has a mean deflection. And it also buffets uh, and it oscillates about that position. Uh, that can be sometimes reason enough to use a damping system, but it also moves across the wind perpendicular to the incoming wind direction in some of the fluid response types that cause this. One of them is commonly known as vortex induced oscillation. This is a, I mean, if, if a building has a very regular profile and is exposed, a lot of that profile is above its neighboring buildings or well, that would, that's one great scenario where we can make this type of response, which is going to be a bad response at one particular wind speed, we can make that significantly better by adding some damping and, you know, cutting that response down perhaps by as much as half, uh, depending on how much space or mass can be turned over to it. You can go about that other ways. You can certainly add more stiffness and add more mass, um, but uh, that may not be as economical. Now you've been mentioning a lot about wind. You also mentioned earlier pedestrian excitation. What are those effects on a building? Right, so the pedestrian excitation is usually not such an issue in a high rise building. So, but we can take the same type of approach, the same technology basically, and apply it to structures that move vertically under the influence of pedestrian loading. So some of the places where you see this are um, pedestrian bridges. They're generally quite lightweight, you know, gossamer thin and daring architectural shapes. Uh, there's just not a lot of material in there being strained to actually dissipate the energy uh, that you know even a solo occupant could in part accidentally or worse on purpose um, you could also have long span ballroom floors perhaps you're over top of another ballroom or a bowling area or something like that and you just don't have a lot of support columns so you have a very large trampoline of sorts and not a lot of damping in it yeah, and I'm curious about that because we've I've seen certain you know modeling of the wind's effects on the outside of a building. I don't know if I've sort of seen how do you model pedestrian excitation within a building like that. So there are a couple of sort of large regions. We we break the problem into one of a couple of kinds. Uh, what you might have is an office space where uh, a solo occupant is walking down a hallway or through sort of one of your main traffic aisles, and uh, people on either side of that person, they notice their monitors bouncing or they can even feel the floor. Um, now that's not an, 
that's not an absolute sign of failure on the part of that building, but it, if it is intolerable for the occupants, it's maybe something that can be addressed. So a small number of people can cause this response, or in some instances, you could even have very sensitive electronic equipment like scanning microscopes or, or fabrication equipment for microcircuit electronics. There's another very different type of problem where you have a crowd moving together. And so the very worst type of response that pedestrians can do is when they are a large group of them quite dense in a ballroom or a dance floor, uh, perhaps at a wedding in a convention center, uh, you may have a partition down the center of this very large event space and people on one side are trying to have a business presentation and the other side there's a wedding going full swing, right? And these just, if the floor moves, these aren't compatible occupancies. Uh, the thing that really makes the crowd move is the fact that they can all hear a musical cue. So if you let them move at random, they really don't do much to the structure. But to to the best of each participant's ability, if they can move in time with a, a beat that they all hear pretty much in at the same time, uh, then they can all move together and you can have pretty large forcing on the structure. You might have an occupancy which even weighs 30% as much as the structural material itself does. And this is this can be quite a big force. This is where I'm picturing the need for modeling before that place is even built. I would imagine, you know, if you're building a conference center, if you're building a venue that's going to be for weddings and things like that, you want to nip that issue in the bud as much as you can, just as a high-rise building wouldn't be built without some amount of wind modeling. So, it, it, but are you tending to see this more happen kind of after the fact? Once the place is built, then you're going in and getting, you know, complaints, oh, this room is making this other room vibrate, or are you getting a chance to go in there before they're built? I would say we are more often becoming involved at the design stage. And, that, and that's a credit to everybody thinking about the nature of the problem uh, that they may see in the future. There are some types of structures that run into problems, perhaps in their originally intended usage, it was just overlooked, or maybe they didn't understand properly that, hey, I meet conventional criteria, but that doesn't mean it's imperceptible. You know, maybe they're gonna have to forever after control their event planning and not put business conferences next to weddings and they just have to manage their schedule if they don't go for some sort of after you know after the fact remedy uh, but sometimes it's a repurposing of a space so i mean a, a very popular one to see is that you would have one occupancy above like a grocery store uh, and at some future date that occupancy on the upper floor turns into a fitness center and so now you have uh, rhythmic aerobics classes where You've got, you know, a dozen or two dozen occupants in a room bouncing and it'll make the light fixtures and signage in the grocery store underneath shake and vibrate. And those are very, you know, they're difficult to deal with, but they can be done with damping systems. I would imagine in a case like that, that dance studio or fitness studio above the grocery store, though, is not the entire span of the grocery store. So is it kind of a little bit of a limited problem? You're going to be able to go into a smaller space and deal with what's happening there? Or does it sort of affect the whole building? It is definitely going to be more of a problem, more close to where the loading happens. You're right about that. The, the effects can be seen a little bit further away, but probably treating it where the cause is, is going to be able to fix your problem all over. And I like you mentioned some examples like things like bowling alleys and uh, and ballrooms. I don't know if, how many of those are being built anymore, bowling alleys. I guess sometimes in sort of, you know, hipster downtown, there's a bit of a comeback for those. Of course, not a lot of people spending time in ballrooms this year with COVID. But uh, it kind of draws me to that uh, question about, you know, have you kind of learned lessons from the experiences then of older buildings? You know, were there things that were done in the past that uh, would be done differently today? 
So you're right. Uh, I, I when I use the building uh, the example of a bowling alley, that's you know it, it definitely brings a vivid picture to everybody's mind. But I don't think we're designing seeing a lot of those designs anymore. Um, I, I think perhaps you know it's a repurposing of spaces that we might learn the most. You're sort of going into it in a forensics capacity. You know, if at one point there were a lot of floor to ceiling partitions in an office floor, and you know more in a little before COVID, but a little bit more modern times, the, there was a big move towards open office spaces. So a lot of partitions were being pulled down. They weren't structural. Uh, but what those partitions were doing was actually providing a lot of place for energy to get dissipated in the little microscopic rubbing between drywall and studs and stuff like that. So you could have a space that was maybe performing well, one in its original embodiment, but starts to have troubles later on after it's remodeled. Yeah, we think of those dividers more in the world of, I guess, acoustics rather than yes. of, uh, you know, what we think of for damping systems. But uh, they would have an effect uh, once they, they disappear, it sounds like. And they sure do. Yeah. Excellent. Now, the other, of course, question, you know, when you mentioned high rises earlier, as we're seeing more and more high rises, therefore, are damping systems becoming more common in construction? Are they becoming, is there a need for them to become more robust? So let me let me go back and say something I should have said at the beginning, and that is most of these damping systems are being put in for what we call serviceability criteria. So it's comfort, it's uh, it's performance, but it's not safety. Uh, in most of the cases, we find that, well, darn near, near every case, uh, the, the structures are, the structural materials are easily up to the task of withstanding the forces that are predicted by the wind. It's just that the occupants aren't gonna be satisfied with the experience. So yes, we are seeing more damping systems um, per year uh, in different geographies all around the world. Uh, cities are building taller or building with just more advanced materials, You know, less concrete, more steel, very efficient structural systems, uh, but, but less material means less damping capacity. So a lot of, I think, structural engineers are finding themselves sort of backed into this situation where they're gonna need to learn about and deal with their first structure that has supplementary damping in it. But, and, you know, that's, that's going to be the norm, I think. Uh, however, you know, we've got some engineers coming into school learning about these types of systems and they get into their first engineering job and they think, you know, I have a feeling I could really optimize the structure and take another couple hundred tons of steel out of it or, you know, reduce the greenhouse emissions from using so much concrete. I actually want to attack my first couple of buildings this way. And that is, I think, the way of the future here. It's definitely a more highly optimized structure if you can uh, address the damping uh, intentionally in the first place. Does the idea also of you know increasing comfort uh, that you mentioned before, does that kind of become a little bit of a value add? Because then you can go to the client and say, hey, you know what, these uh, these really expensive penthouse uh, you know, units up at the top there, uh, we can make them even more attractive uh, by making them more comfortable from the outset. Absolutely. So there is a movement across a lot of the design space towards performance-based design. So this really involves having a discussion early on with ownership uh, and saying, look, how do you want your space to perform? And we can, in many cases, you know, make sure that it reaches. And when, when I say minimum standards, I don't mean that in a derogatory fashion at all. You know, if you build this building in downtown Toronto, it will perform as well as the buildings next to it, all up and down the street, because we're going to make sure they all, even though it's taller, we'll make sure the occupants don't experience any greater accelerations. They don't see doors swinging or water moving in their sink or in their toilet bowls. We can make sure that happens. But if you want, we can even achieve higher standards. And we don't maybe see that so much domestically as we do overseas. Um, 
in the Middle East, there was a time when, you know, ultra luxe hotels, six star type occupancies, they just, they want to drive these accelerations to the point where the strongest storm you're statistically likely to see in a 10 year period is not uncomfortable for the occupants at the top. Or uh, in Taiwan, for example, they have, instead of thinking about, you know, how often, what's the worst I will feel in one year of occupying the top of the structure, they're thinking on a much more frequent basis. So every six months, I want to, I want to know and control my peak accelerations and my comfort in a very frequent wind event. Yeah, which kind of raises the issue of, again, even if the building is completely structurally safe, uh, things like increasing number of storms with climate change, there must be areas of the world where, you know, that that uh, providing that level of comfort is a little bit of a, a moving target. It is a moving target. There are some things I think that generally work in our favor uh, that, you know, the tallest building to go up in a city, maybe on a harbor front, uh, it is initially standing sort of proud of all of its neighbors and it's gonna see its greatest wind loads and greatest responses in its, probably in its first years. And as you, as the densification continues and it starts to become surrounded by neighbors of similar stature, you probably, you, you, we might expect, even without any changing in climate, that uh, those responses could go down with time. Uh, so things don't generally get surprisingly worse. Now that's not always true. You can have a structure erected. There are some sort of crucial distances between maybe four and six or four and eight sort of characteristic, you know, how wide is your building? Well, if you build another building six times that far away, you can be in the downwind um, wake of that building. And so, you know, you never expected that guy upwind of you, but now when the wind comes across him, you could actually have a worse response than had ever been anticipated during uh, the design stage. It's not common for this to happen. Yeah. All of that sort of dodged your question about climate change. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm just wondering, you know, whether there are areas where uh, wind is becoming more of, a, of an issue. Well, there, there are, Folks uh, in the company I work at, RWDI, who know a lot more about climate change than I do. I, I'm The team I'm on with the damping system certainly is not uh, qualified to predict how wind loads may increase on these structures in the future. For sure. I guess, yeah, I just use that as an example of, again, the moving target question. And it sounds like from what you also just said, you can't build a building for all eventualities. You are going to have to look at it in the future and see whether the effect of other buildings that have come up around it uh, is going to change over time uh, with things like wind as well. Um, and what else are you working on these days? You know, we've talked about a couple of examples these days uh, that, that you've been um, uh, citing in your in this interview. But what else is out there where this kind of becomes a, a big issue? Damping systems. Well, it's really variations on a theme. There are a lot of high rises. You know, often there can be architectural features. So there have been some impressive statues, uh, commemorative statues made in India or really slender architectural spires uh, that are, it's really just the visual appeal. And these things can be, they don't carry a lot of structure inside. There's really not a lot of thought. There was never meant to be a lot of effort necessary to design some of these very slender or artistic features. And yet when you start to investigate and, un and unravel what the wind might be able to do to it, it turns out to be quite a, quite a challenging situation. So you're really working on projects all over the world. Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, a great example is an old one, but uh, in the, in Dublin, Ireland, there was a spire put up at a, at a site that had, had different commemorative features over the years. And it's 120 meter tall stainless steel spike, right? Um, it's a 
great looking structure, but the wind does some really interesting things to it. So it took, you know, up inside there, some damping systems in order to make it behave well. And I would imagine very custom bespoke work versus going into a high rise building. Okay, you make a good point there. So <laughs> you would be right uh, to assume that pretty much all of the ones that we do in high rise buildings are bespoke. Uh, nobody ever, well, there are some parameters that have to be customized to the building. Uh, it, it has a certain amount of mass. So one building perhaps needs a lot more mass to do the job than a, another smaller building with less wind on it did. Uh, it may have a different frequency. So there are design elements that have to be different uh, about that one as well. And they almost never going to come with the same space constraint challenges. So the opportunity cost of that space at the top of the building, you know, they want penthouses, they want rooftop gardens, there's elevator and mechanical equipment that has to fit up there. Uh, those demands are never the same from one building to another. So, I mean, that certainly sounds like an opportunity for consulting engineers, both with new construction and going into existing buildings to really sort of say, hey, this is something that the uh, the owners need to think about. Yeah, uh, you're right. Uh, and the sooner the sooner this can be investigated, uh, the you know the lower the impact can be on every other facet of that design. If if you give us a very tortured, difficult space to put a system into, we can probably do it. But it may have a form factor that was more expensive to fabricate and erect, and maybe even maintain in the future. So the the earlier we can trade off alternatives about you know conventional approaches versus some damping approaches when there's still a little bit of movement of uh, available space at the top of the building. Uh, this is the this is the time to have that conversation. Great. Thank you, Trevor, for speaking with me today about this topic. It's been a pleasure, Peter. Thanks. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Better Buildings podcast. I'm Peter Saunders, editor of Canadian Consulting Engineer. We'll see you next time.